Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. As you know, I moved back east on May 1st, and the weather keeps being lousy. I'm sitting there all last week. It's cloudy. Memorial Day weekend, my friends are going down to the Jersey Shore. I was staying because we're still getting our plates ready. Cloudy. It maybe was sunny for five hours one day. Finally, I look at my app for the weather for yesterday for tomorrow and it looks like it's going to be sunny i looked this morning and it's going to be raining so i really i'm, I'm getting stir crazy i need a little bit of sun i'm not one of those people that's you know a beach goer big time but i like a little bit of sunshine in my life and it just needs to change so anyway we have a great show today we have a uh, very talented gentleman who um had a very big popular tv show that's coming back on the audio version uh in june 8th which is awesome and my guest is jonathan katz how you doing jonathan I'm good. Hey, Steve, uh, what part of, where, where in the world are you right now? I live in Marlton, New Jersey, which is right next to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where I grew up, which is 10 right. minutes from Philadelphia. Right, and, and I'm, I'm in an apartment in Philadelphia where my wife and I are living temporarily. So I'm curious about the Jersey Shore for the first time in my life. Well, I'll tell you what the Jersey Shore is, and and, and it's funny is it got us such a bad reputation because that TV show, but it's it's really if you go to Avalon or Stone Harbor or Ventnor or Margate, it's beautiful. I mean, yeah. you know, it's the beaches are great. I'm always, I mean, living, I lived in LA for 15 years, and I'll be honest, I have, I'm a big advocate, if that's the right word, of the Atlantic Ocean over the Pacific Ocean because, in all honesty. I thought the Pacific Ocean sucked. It was always cold. The beach is different. People are coming down with pizza. Yeah. So, um, I now. So, you What are you doing in Philadelphia? Well, we have two grandchildren here, two daughters, uh, two beautiful kids, couple of kids not so attractive. <laughs> um, hey, Steve, do you encourage your guests to wear headphones? Um, I usually, I. It's up to you. A lot of times, people don't. I do a pretty freestyle. I think you can take them off if you want. Okay, yeah, I'm doing that now. Does it still sound okay or, or do... You sound great. You sound great. It's uh, I have you coming through my computer, and it's uh, you sound very clear, actually. And how do you... Rec- um, because I'm a technophile, an audiophile, how do you record this podcast? I record it just off a Zoom 4N, uh, whatever, it's a Zoom H4N, and I put it up to my Skype. And I record it, and it records an MP3 format, and then I load it to my computer, and I send it out to a bunch of different internet stations, and I load it to my website. Goodbye. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't know why I get into technology. I'm sitting here with this exact same machine, but I'm not using it right now. Because, um, they make wonderful stuff. <clears throat> I spend much too much time looking at audio equipment and buying things I don't need. Now... How did you get? Were you always an audio fan? Like, as a, what were you like as a child? I know you were a musician first before you did comedy, and you're still a musician. But what were you like as a kid? Were you a precocious kid? Did you like sports? Did you like entertainment? I mean, what was your method of growing into the business? Well, uh, I think I liked sports. I, I, I was a pretty good athlete. Um, but then I, when I was a bit. 11, I discovered the world of table tennis, and I became very good at that. I actually was a New York State champion when I was 18. But um, the 
when my my father brought home a reel-to-reel tape recorder when I was about seven, and that changed my life because I, I've been been recording everything since then. I mean, I I, I love recording people. For me, it's I collect voices. It's like kind of like collecting photographs for other people. And you got that at a young age. You started doing that. Yeah. So who who were you recording at that time? Were you recording relatives? Were you recording friends? And how did they react to you recording them? It was mostly mostly me and my cousin Paul, who is we're still very close, and we would record. We we read magazine, Mad Magazine, into the tape recorder. I grew funny at that time. And so you're doing that, and then now, when do you decide to pursue, I mean, how, as a kid, when you're seeing your recording stuff, what were you thinking you could do in a, as a career with that? Well, my cousin Paul and I had a band called The Cousins, and the music, and not just the music, but I would say the music and the lyrics sucked. <laughs> but his dad was, was worked for Columbia Records, so we thought we were going to get a big break in his living room. But that never happened. So you're playing music, and now how do you decide what college you're going to go to, and what is your major? Uh, I, I went to, I would go to whatever college would accept me at that point. I was a really lousy student, and I spent a year at New Paltz, um, and then I transferred to Goddard College where my sister was a student, because I wasn't really happy at New Paltz. You know anything about Goddard College? Um, I know it's in Vermont, I believe, but I don't really know. I know it's. I don't know much about the background of Goddard. Was it an art school? It was. It was a. It was a hippie school in the '60s. So it was a lot of drugs, a lot of sex, and in the '60s. I just have to emphasize that part because there are schools like that now. Right. Hampshire is a school like that. What is Hampshire okay. in, in Massachusetts? So, so you go there and it's a hippie school. And what do you decide you're going to study? That wasn't even an issue at Goddard. You, you can figure that out on your way on your way out. You know, I I think ultimately you needed a hand in a senior study, and my senior study was in, uh, all about multi-track recording and I recorded a version of Three Blind Mice and a couple of original songs and that was my senior study. See, that's the kind of college. I went, I went to a liberal arts school in New Jersey at the time. It was called Stockton State College. Now it's Richard Stockton University. And right. before it started, it was started by hippies on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. And so it's funny because I had some classes where, you know, I did a theme of my term paper and I talked about TV and music, and it got an A because it was it was very open minded, which I think is great for some of these colleges. Yeah, true. I mean, they're not for everybody. I mean, you have to sort of like my daughter went to Hampshire College, and she she went there kind of knowing what she went there with a mission. You know, she had some idea of what she wanted to study, and it meant a lot to her that experience. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I took a course at Goddard in sensitivity training. They had, which was kind of like a, an encounter group. I don't know if you remember those. I remember seeing, I'm hearing them, yes. Yeah. 
So there was one girl in the group who didn't trust me. And the leader of the group, a guy named Francis Faye, said, Jonathan, what, what, uh, you need to stand behind, I don't remember her name, and she needs to fall backwards into, into your arms, gaining your trust. Well, years later, she wheeled up to me at a convention. <laughs> so, so when did you start to decide to start you wanted to do stand-up? When you got out of college, were you still playing music in college? Yeah, yeah, I, I, um, but I, I had took a, had some time off to study jazz guitar, and I got pretty good at it, but then, um, after school, I, after college, I, I formed a band called Cats and Jammers, and we, I think we were kind of a seminal rhythm and blues band, uh, from 1979, uh, to 1980, and, you know, I think we influenced the music of the Stones, uh, maybe the Jay Giles band, um, but, uh, no, I'm, I'm lying, our music was not that good, we, our music was mediocre, we were not that, weren't bad and we weren't that good. So you're playing music, and now, I know now, were you thinking of getting into writing more and acting? Because I know you were friends, I believe, with David Mamet at college. Well, when I, when I started singing, the audience started talking. <laughs> and when I started talking, the audience started listening, and when I started dancing, they left. <laughs> so I kind of took my cue from the audience. So... And so when did you start to do stand-up? I mean, because, you know, you, you've had a prolific career in stand-up. I mean, when did you, when did you decide to do stand-up? Well, there was, a, there was one stage in between music, between a band and stand-up, that was called Cabaret. Uh, I worked at Cabaret Clubs in New York, and I would slowly phase out the music in my act until one night at the improv, um, guy who produced the lottery bill, Bob Morton, at, that t at the time, he said, we'd love to have you on the show, but you can't use the guitar. Because I, I was working with a guitar, and everything in the guitar, every, I didn't play the guitar, everything was pre-recorded. So we said, you can't do that on, on our show. So I had to learn to work without the guitar. And that took me about two years, and I made my debut on the Letterman Show in 1985. Now, what was that like? I've heard so many people say, you know, a lot of times, I know someone who was on it who got bumped eight times. I know it's very, uh, very nerve-wracking. They basically tell you pretty much every bit you have to do and break it down. What was it like for you? Because it was your first national appearance, and, and it's, a big, it's a big thing. You know, I think the thing that really threw me is that David Letterman didn't want to be my friend. Yeah, he wanted. He was very supportive of getting me through this first experience, and he was a great listener. Was on that show, right? But I thought, you know, we'd hang out afterwards, and that that part is not true. Um, so I did that show nine times. I did the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson twice. I did it with Jay Leno, I think once, and then I did Conan Show many times. Now, how did the, the, when you did The Tonight Show with Johnny, because it's different. I mean, it was different then. I mean, you know, once you did it, everyone watched Johnny Carson back then. And it was, it was, it could change your career. When you were working, you had done Letterman, you were, you were, you were an established act. What, how did The Tonight Show come about? And did you see any instant 
career juice after you appeared on it? Well, I tried to get on that show through the traditional routes, which was dealing with the guy who booked the show, the town coordinator. Yeah, Macaulay. Yeah, but that did not work out. So um, one of the writers, a guy named Michael Barry, said to me, just send me... Uh, j- just send me a tape and I'll show it to Johnny. So, and that was how I got on the show. It, it was just luck that I, that I happened to know him. So you, I, mean, oh, I, mean, I don't think I ever met the guy at Michael Barry, but I knew his uh, girlfriend at the time and she helped us connect. And before I went on stage, my wife was with me, and before I went on stage, she noticed that I had one hair on my very bald head sticking straight up. And she said, uh, she pointed that to me, and I said, just yank it out. So she pulled it out, and the pain was so intense that it, sent, that it centered me. <laughs> so you, you go on stage. Now, how did you, as you're, as you're up there, are you nervous, or are you excited or is there a mixture of both and when you opened did you hit it straight off the did the first joke get a good hit and then you felt comfortable well yeah once once i got my first laugh everything was fine but um the weird thing is that the fear in my eyes and my body language to some casting director looked like i was a looked like i was a tough guy and they thought i was going to be uh, they thought i was going to star in a show called the commish just because of my, because of the way I appeared in that moment. But it was a good set, you know, and then um, I to remember who else was on the show. I, I think it, once I was on with um, Leon Redbone, which was great. Now, how do they do that? Would they just, did they just call you back? I mean, did they sit there and go, hey, uh, by the way, um, you're gonna you're gonna do a uh, Carson again or Letterman again? How would that work? I mean, would you know how how far in advance? Because I'm sure you'd have to start working on your act, and you know, because you need different a different set. Yeah, but, that, but that's all I was doing in those days. I was just working in clubs. So, um, but the, the one thing I'm leaving out of that first performance is, I, you know, that little high sign he gives comedians. Johnny Carson used to do that. Yeah, meaning it went well. Well, I, I was so intent on getting one, I gave him one. <laughs> um, but it, it, he did have me back, and uh, and then the night after I made my second appearance on the Tonight Show, I was so full of myself. I went to I did a show at a club called Governors on Long Island, right, and. After my first joke, said some guy. After my first joke, some guy said, "A heckler screamed out." I don't know how blue I can make this. But you can blow as you want. You can blow as you want. Some guy yelled out to me, "Fuck my cum," which does not make a lot of sense. No, <laughs> but it, it did bring me down from my Tonight Show glow immediately. I remember that was just a. I was just another asshole trying to make a living in clubs. 
And you were making a living in clubs, but did you have any other, you know, were you thinking in your mind, because, you know, you said you always been into the technical stuff, were you thinking anything about those old recordings you made with your your cousin back in the day? Were you thinking, you know, what were you thinking stand-up was going to bring for you? I never thought of it as, as a career. Um, I, I never thought that comedy would be my career, but I always thought, I always thought that I'd be, I would write a hit song, and I still do. I still think I'm going to write a hit song, which is crazy part. If you if you ever have written a song, you think you're going to write another one, but better. Now, when you you, you write songs, you know you you know you were doing stand up, but you know you had also co-written a screenplay with David Mamet, right? No, I wrote the story on which this, I helped him write the, the story on which the screenplay is based. Okay. You're talking, you're talking about the House of Games, right? Which was a great movie. So, did you think? Did you think possibly about trying to get into screenwriting at all, or was that just something you just wanted to do stand up? No, I did. I wrote. I wrote a movie with a a friend of mine named Bill Novak, who's the dad of B.J. Novak, um, and a ghostwriter, uh, a pretty well-known ghostwriter of uh, William Novak. And we wrote a movie called One Time Only, and we sold it to Fox 2000, and it never got produced. But it was, it, the idea is going to sound familiar, I'll explain it. it was, it's about a guy who, whose wife gives him a gift certificate for one extramarital affair uh, for his birthday. And it's an idea that... Um, my manager at the time was Laurie Leonard, who then became Laurie Dave, Larry David's wife. Okay. And Larry David called me when he, he said, uh, Jonathan, I hear you're writing a movie about a guy who gets gets a gift certificate. Is it true? I said, yeah. He said, okay, I'll write something else. And he did. He wrote, um, I forget the name of his first movie. Do you remember that? No, I remember there was, there was a uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where he was allowed to have an affair. Yeah, that was a runner for an entire season. And he also asked me about that if I minded. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, I guess I guess we have a very similar sense of comedy. We both like books about Jonas Salk. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the connection is, but... <laughs> So you're writing, you're doing stand-up. Now, when does the Dr. Katz uh, character come in? How did that all develop? Because, I mean, and, and plus it was so innovative back then. I mean, it was a squiggle vision, which was not seen. But was, was did, did that come from something in your act? Or how did you get to be developing that character? Well, that belongs to do with Tom Snyder, with meeting Tom Snyder and this he showed me the movie Things Change. I don't know if he, he, he's told you his version of that, but he saw me in Things Change, another David Mamet movie. And then he discovered we were neighbors. So we, we got together and we started working on something called uh, Live from the Teacher's Lounge. That was our first project, um, which never really went anywhere. But he wrote and produced a few shows, and I was always a uh, made an appearance in them. A show called Science Court 
the Dick and Paula Celebrity Chat Show for FX. That was an animated show. Um, and Dr. Katz was the one that took... Uh, it still has such a loyal following, that show. Um, and the audio version, I think, is going to surprise a lot of people that they are not going to really mind the animation is missing. Does that make sense? Well, if it's good, if it's a good story and it's everything, I mean, you know, I know Tom had done also done a audio book of a musical. So I think we're now where it's like, if it's, if you can, because everyone listens to podcasts, everyone listens to, you know, even still books on tape. And I think what happens is if it's entertaining, if the content's good, we don't need to be visually enhanced anymore. And it's like, you know, and it's not, unless it's like a high end, high end animation, which, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, look at that animation. It can be in 3D. I think people just, we're getting happier with just content because we can listen to it anywhere. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm not one of those people who drives and reads my phone. I know people who do, I don't. But when you're driving, you can listen to anything. So I think people who were fans, you know, a lot of it was, it was just the humor. And I think that's what they'll appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, and Laura Silverman is is very present as my receptionist. John Benjamin uh, occasionally portrait comes on to portray my son Ben, but it, and also we've gotten great patience. Sarah Silverman, um, Ted Danson, who's not a comedian but a superb actor, uh, Dana Gould, Andy Kinder. Um, Trying to think of more emo Phillips, just wonderful, wonderful patients, and the show centers around the patient, and also we're introducing a couple of new characters. One is uh, Laura now has a sister on, on the audio show, portrayed by Erica Rhodes. I don't know if you know her. Yeah, she's been on the show. She's a, she's a she's a sweet kid. Yeah, and. Rick Overton portrays the janitor in my office. So we're trying to to populate the world of Dr. Katz. Well, um, what are you going to ask? Is there a difference between the original and this? And is, I mean, is it what, what you know, what makes it different? And is it because there's, you know, we're in a different time now. Things have changed since your show was on Comedy Central, you know, the way we look at psychology and therapy and everything has changed. There's a lot more pharmaceuticals involved. I mean, has, has, have you changed as, as a doctor or are you pretty much the same guy? Pretty much the same guy. Dr. Katz is still 49. Okay. Um, and he's still an ineffectual father and he can't really, and Laura continues to boss him around. Um, the one thing that's changed is that Dr. Katz now thinks that it's important to have weekly staff meetings, even though his staff is only Laura. Okay. <laughs> um, just just to really uh, make sure that the culture of the company is is what it should be, and that the, and and Ben, who doesn't work for Dr. Katz. He's not a member of the staff, but he'd like to be the chief of staff in these meetings. You know, he'd like to participate in the staff meetings, but not in the actual work of the staff. So, so it's not that much work. Right. 
So now the bringing it back. Well, when it, when it when it first came out itself, what was right. what was people's reaction when you were pitching it? Were they sitting there going, you know, because everyone was watching Comedy Central and it was it was a different view of comedy. Where, and you always got very good comics on, and you worked in their bit, you know, their bits and stuff like that. How did you approach Comedy Central to sit there and go, okay, here's what I'm going to do, and it's going to be squiggly, and it's going to be, um, you know, my my personality with comics. How did you pitch that show? And, and did they, did they like it right away? Or did you take it, a, did it take a while until they decided, Hey, you know what? This, this could be a really popular show. Well, you know, we, we sent them, it was produced in Massachusetts, which first of all, was unusual because people like to walk to the set of where a show is being made. And, uh, Nobody ever came from nobody ever came up from Comedy Central to see what was going on. So we had we didn't have notes, which a lot of producers hate and writers. So we had that advantage. But I think once the head of HBO, the former head of HBO, a guy named Michael Fuchs, once he they heard that he loved it, everything was sort of smooth sailing because I think HBO was their parent company or Viacom was time and forget the corporate structure but um, yeah it wasn't until and and they didn't we sent them the, the pilot and they said when are we going to see the real thing and Tom said this is the real thing because it looks like it's could have been made by a five-year-old right but it actually was really beautifully crafted and was almost shot like a movie, the way it was animated, where you would have an establishing shot, then the point of view down from Dr. Katz to his patients, the other way around. But nobody actually moved in the show. They just vibrated. Now, how long back then did it take from you shooting it to getting it actually up and running? Because I know a while ago, animation could take forever. Well, the first episode took us took us six months to make, and then the turnaround was three weeks after after that because Tom was very good at replicating teams. The first episode was made with uh, one audio engineer, who was him, and he did all the editing. And then by and that was just then once we got an order for a season of six. He needed to hire more people. We moved to a bigger space. And he already had a company, Tom Snark Productions, that was in the educational software business that was doing very well. And he just um, replicated teams of animators, editors. And the next ever, I think, was for 13, then 22. Well, I don't know if we ever got a 22, but we, they kept increasing the size of the order and we kept increasing the size of the staff. Now, when you were developing it, because you know it was you two who created it, were you involved with the comics that would be on in your patients, or did Comedy Central say, hey, this person's very hot right now, we want them to be on your couch? They could not give a shit. Okay. Um, I mean, the comics we used initially were just friends of mine from the world of stand-up. And then once the show was successful, people started approaching us, and say, geez, we'd love to be on the show. Guys like um, 
I think Ray Romano. For Ray Romano, it was the biggest thing he ever did before Raymond. Okay. And he was superb on our show, and also on the audio show. Now, as you... Yeah, Ray Romano is, is one of the patients with the Audible version. Which is great. I mean, so it's good that you're having those people back from the beginning. I know Ron Funches is also on it. Right. Who's, yeah. a, who's a newer guy in the scene, which is good. Right. And um, how did you choose the people for this? Did, was there also people you knew you had worked with for the new audio version, or was it also some people said, hey, Jonathan, you know, maybe you should put this person in? Well, there's something that happened in between the the cartoon and the audio show, which was Dr. Cats Live, which has been happening for a couple of years with the help of Bruce Smith. And um, a lot of the people who did Dr. Cats Live are also on the audio show, and, they, and a couple of them were in the cartoon. But Dana, Dana Gould was both, was both in the cartoon, did Dr. Cats Live, and is in the audio show. Um, I'm trying to think if there's another one. Uh, uh, oh, Emo Phillips falls into that category. <laughs> Emo Phillips is the only guy who would show up in in, uh, in Watertown, Massachusetts, and sit outside while he got in character. <laughs> okay. So when the show, when do you know the show? Back when it was on Comedy Central, when do you know people were watching it? Because you said you're 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 Orders went from 6 to 8 to 12, and you don't know if you're out of 22. But when did you sit there, and when and how did the network communicate to you, going, hey, you know, people are really digging this? Because it did become very popular. When did you know you had something that people were enjoying? Well, you know, my, my goal was not to embarrass my family. I started making the show, and the people on the block would hear it and see it. But I think at some point, a friend of mine said they were in a hotel in England, and heard Dr. and saw Dr. Katz. And it never occurred to me it was international success. Um, and then it was it was uh, translated. It was dubbed into Mandarin, into uh, I think a couple of other languages, but mostly um, you know it had some kind of international reach, and it's still the fan base is still international. So it's getting it's getting very popular now. You also you got you won an Emmy, right? An Emmy, and even more meaningful was a Peabody Award. Now the Emmy was for best voiceover uh, right. acting. Now, when did you find out you were getting an Emmy, and did you go when and and how was the awards if you went? I found out from this woman who worked for Comedy Central, who called me up and said, "Jonathan, I have some good news for you." And I'm not the kind of guy who believes in good news. But um, she said you've been you won an Emmy award, and I, was, I guess I was competing against people like Glenn Close and um, really wonderful actors. Um, and it was not a televised Emmy award; it was one of these awards that took place before the broadcast Emmys. And the host that evening of the the Emmy Awards was Milton Berle and the award just before mine was a woman who did a movie about Holocaust survivors and Milton Berle got up on after her performance and said hey how about those survivors come on give it up um, and then Peter Herman uh, handed me my award which was kind of exciting 
Do you still have, I admire. Do you still have the award? I mean, where do you keep it? It's in our home in Massachusetts. So now, during when you're doing Dr. Katz, are you still doing stand-up, or is this Dr. Katz taking all your time, or, or, or were you pulling away from stand-up at this time, or were you still yeah. doing your stand-up and still doing that show? No, I, I was kind of withdrawing from stand-up. Um, but, yeah, Dr. Katz took up a lot of time. And I it would travel to Cal- occasionally travel to California to record people, but more often than not, uh, they were recorded in California while I was, and then I would add my voice after the fact. Like if you were um, Gary Shandling, you would go into a studio in L.A. and record your your part with me on the phone, and then I would drop in my lines after the fact. So it'd be that so it would sound like we're in the same room. So you basically, you basically were staying in the Boston area. Was there any reason why you didn't want to move down to L.A.? Or were you just very happy in Boston? Or what What was that? Well, L.A. gives me the creeps. I, I don't think it's a... I mean, raising two kids, I don't think it's a great place to raise a family. Uh, my favorite example is that in Newton, Massachusetts, you might see... Macy's and Bloomingdale's, and in LA, this store called Retail Slut. <laughs> I just moved back from LA after 15 years, so it is it is a quite a different feel back east. Yeah. Do you, have, do you have kids? No, we don't. But the funny thing is, my girlfriend, you know, she moved out with me for, we were out there for three and a half years, and she was renting her condo out. And we're looking around, and we're looking as our rent keeps going up and going up, and we're looking at Two bed and apartments, and not even the best area, would be costing like five hundred thousand. And we're like, God, you own, and your mortgage is half our rent. So we said, you know what? Let's just move back because it is—it's getting overcrowded. Your LA has changed a lot in the last fifteen years. Yeah. Well, the, the real estate in Philadelphia is so much more reasonable than it is in in Boston, New York, Los Angeles. Philadelphia is great. It's also kind of an interesting place to live. Well, it's changed a lot. You know, I remember I used to do stand-up and back in the late 80s, and the comedy clubs were all down on Old City, which was a call. But back then, it was really, Old City was nasty. Now, when I went back, I mean, because I didn't be back for a long time. When I went back a few years ago, I'm like, oh, my God, it's beautiful. The city's changed a lot, and it's got a lot going on, and it's got great food. And it's very accessible. I did a show there a few weeks ago, and I took the train in. You know, you can take the speed line from yeah. New Jersey, and they really gear on public transportation, which is great. Did you ever work with a guy named the legendary Wid? Oh, yeah, I know the Wid. I, and he's, I, I worked, actually, when I, I was doing stand-up a little bit when, a few years ago, I ended up working with the Wid like three or four times. Yeah. He, he, when I worked with him for the first time, I was so relieved that there was another guy who had to get to the club two hours early to set up. Right. <laughs> because I had a guitar. Sometimes I'd bring my own PA system. And I was so nervous about the technical part of my act. And he just, he was there even before me, setting up props all over the place. But he's a really sweet guy. Well, I would MC with him sometimes. The comedy works in Philadelphia years ago. And it was like impossible to close the show out after he was done because the whole stage would be strewn with 
with just props and you're trying to climb through and he and you're sitting there going oh my god there's another show how's he going to get them all off on time and he would push them all back so you're as yeah. the shows got later your stage time would get smaller i mean your area to work would get smaller and smaller yeah i remember the comedy works that was a great place it was owned by a guy named steve something wasn't steve it? young yeah, and it was it was owned. The restaurant was owned by a guy, a councilman named Jimmy Tyoon, and it was above the Middle East restaurant on I think second or third in Chestnut. Right. So now, now when you were doing Doctor Katz, you also did a show called Ink. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, that was a really an amazing experience. So with with Ted Danson and his wife Mary Steenburgen, and the hardest part of doing that show is learning how to pronounce Steenburgen. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, the the first episode there was with a director named Tommy Shami, right? And I'm not making up that name. And he he gave me the best direction I've ever gotten from a director. He said, "Speak up," <laughs> because I I was not used to working in front of a live audience, and I still am not comfortable with it. And I'm a very soft-spoken guy. Um, and then he also discovered that I have a hard time walking and talking as an actor. So he set up, he established every scene that I was in where I was just outside of Ted's door, outside of Mary's door. And I was the head of business affairs. I would just scare them by being there. And I was working with such a great cast of actors who would, Ted Danson's like a, uh, he's such a, moves around the set so beautifully and, and just, he's fun to watch. He's a really wonderful actor. Um, and Mary as well. Now, were you, I mean, were you looking to do something like that? Because you said, you know, you had, you didn't talk that loud, but you were a stand-up. So you had to command, I mean, I guess because of the microphone then, so you command the stage. But was it something that you were like, you were looking to get into a sitcom? Was that something that, or did you just fall into it? No, I think it's because at the time I had a deal with DreamWorks, who produced that show for CBS. And... I think it was Jeffrey Katzenberg's idea of having me on that show. So you did that while you were doing Dr. Katz, I mean, for a little bit. And then, yeah. now, Dr. Katz, as it went on, did you sit there? Did you feel like your show had to end? Or what happened? How, why did it go off the air? And why do you think that, you know, there people have been following it forever? Do you, what, made, what do you think gave it that cult status that people will sit there and go, we want to have this come back and the reason why it came back? Well, I think it really impacted the lives of people. Um, you know, Dr. Katz is not a good therapist, but he somehow made a difference in people's lives. Uh, he's not a therapist, he's me. Right. Uh, I mean, some people still think I'm an actual therapist rather than a comedian. But, um, and I and I can get into that character much too seriously for my own for my own good. But, um, but I think I still get emails from people from all over the world saying how much the show helped them get through a difficult time. And I think, plus, it's it's funny. It was really funny. 
so what happened? I mean, why did it end? It's, was this Comedy Central that it run its course, or did you want to leave? Or well, how? I think that I think the demographics changed for who watches Comedy Central. I think it's younger, and uh, I think the show is a little gentle for the demographic that watches Comedy Central. Who was? So, oh, go ahead. Oh, so you know the show is. I don't like to use the, the C word on, on the air, but it was canceled. <laughs> now, now, how does that make you feel? Because it's such a good show. I'm sure. I'm sure you still had people who wanted to be guests on it. It was like because it was still a hip show, and like anything, if it's a hip, cool show and people like it, you're going to have actors who want to be on. How does it make you feel as a creator? Did you sit there and take it with a grain of salt and say, "Yeah, you know what? The demographics are changing," or were you like, "Screw this, man! It still has legs." You know, I, I think. Um the Well, I actually, around that time, I had a, a gig to. I created another show for Warner Brothers called Raising Dad. Right. And so I, I was focused on that, and uh, it's the second show I had gotten on the air. We got an order for twenty-two episodes to make a show that starred Bob Saget, Brie Larson as a child. Kat Dennings as a child. Uh, Kat Dennings was a, was an adolescent on that show. Um, Jerry Adler was on the show as the grandfather. It was a really wonderful cast, and that was a lot of work and a lot of fun. But during that time, I, I was diagnosed with MS. It made, it made it harder for me to move around the set. Um because I had been asymptomatic for many years. In fact, the first person to diagnose my MS was Tom Snyder, when he said, I have something called run like a girl. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess I guess so. Uh, the end of the TV show, Dr. Guess, really didn't hit me until later when I realized that it still had such a following and occasionally would come back on demand as an experiment of Comedy Central's but it never really caught on in the in the in the new since it was cancelled on television. Now when did you decide to do the live Dr. Katz's? Was that in a when when did that come up and then how was the early reception? Were the shows packed? And where did you decide to do them? Like, what kind of venues did you choose? Festivals. And, and the, only, the only reason we chose festivals is because that's where comedians were. We didn't have to fly anyone in. We, I did San Francisco. I did uh, um, Austin, Texas. I did Washington, D.C. Um Wherever there was a comedy festival and we had an invitation, we'd do it. And it paid very well. Now, how was the reaction to the crowd? Were they excited for it? Was there a lot of buzz when they were like, oh my God, it's going to be around, or what happened? Yeah, it was really, they were thrilled. I mean, uh, I did not anticipate that kind of reaction, especially in Austin. It was so much fun. Um, But, you know, it's a different show. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a stage version of what used to be a cartoon. 
And I'll be doing that in Los Angeles on June 6th. Where at? Uh, at a place called CineFamily. Do you know that place? Sounds familiar. I think it's also also called the Silent Movie Theater. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's down on, uh, I think it's on Fairfax. No, it's in, yeah. we're near West Hollywood. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, we're doing it to, to promote the Audible show. Now, what when people come to see the live show, what's the setup? Are you on a chair? Is there a couch? I mean, what does the stage look like? And has that evolved since you've been doing more of them? Well, I think we've scaled it down. Um, but it, the set is two chairs and a little sort of a night table next to me so I can hand tissues to my patients just in case anything emotional happens, which it never does. And um, and usually I do a, a short stand-up set before I move over to the set of Dr. Katz. But... Um, yeah, it's such a it's a really cool show, and it was it was Bruce who helped me streamline the show. Now, who will be on the show in when you do it in LA? Do you already have the guests ready, or is it a few guests, or how does how long is the show, and how many people will be on? It's an hour and a half show, uh, give or take, and uh, we have I have I'll be seeing four patients. And I don't think we're public about who they are yet. Okay. Because the show, has, it's a small, pretty small venue. The show has sold out just based on the, on the name Dr. Katz. But Laura will be there. Okay. Now, how did the, the audio version, how did that come to fruition? Had it been talking about it for a while or how what what was your process to get that and then you know it releases i believe on june 8th on on amazon and on audible how did that start and how did you find people that would be interested in it well audible uh has been reaching out into the comedy business and they have many audible has many channels and one of them is comedy now and I guess they approached uh, Bruce about doing Dr. Dr. Katz for Audible. We're getting a message from Skype. Are you there? I'm here. I'm the, I hear you. I have no message on Skype for me. Is something... Don't change. Okay. Um, did I answer that question? Well, no, I was just wondering. I mean, was it was it a quick process? They hit up Bruce, and then what did Bruce say to you? Hey, we got we're going to start developing this, or what was your the whole tech the whole process of getting it up and running? Well, you know, it's really I hate to use the expression. It's like a full time job. So much work. Um, I had no idea, and and also I'm not doing the editing, which is that's a good thing. The editing is being done by my assistant, a guy named Rob Lynch. And um, he's good at it. And then, and then it's mastered by Audible. Um, but it's really a lot of people involved. And I'm not complaining about, about the work. It just surprised me. What, I mean, what, what surprised you? Just the, I mean, what was some of the work you had to do that was seemed like over a lot of work? Well, I had to build my own microphone. No, I'm, that's not funny. Um, just all the scheduling and, and 
you know, it's recorded in a technique developed by Tom Snyder, which is very, just explaining it to people the, how to use it, how to record themselves is, is tricky. But, um, you know, it's, it's done in a very unusual way, but, but it sounds great. Now, did you, were, were you in one location and like you said before, like with Gary Shanley would have called or recorded in LA for this, were you in one location and they were in another location or was it all together in a studio? No, no, we're all in different locations. Um, and Tom Snyder is the guy who made that possible by developing this very clever technique, which I'm not allowed to discuss. Some of the things I'm not allowed to discuss. <laughs> That's all right. So you get it done. You start getting the uh, episodes, and you're feeling good about it when you start doing it again. You say, "Man, you know, I really missed this." Or what was your what was your mindset as you were starting to record these? And were you sitting there going, "God, this was such a great thing." Well, Doctor Katz is so resembles resembles me so much. For instance, we have the same name. His first name is also Jonathan. <laughs> well, we have the same history past, personal past. So it's just such an easy thing to slip into. Wait, let me get in the character. I'll show you what I mean. I'll show you what I mean. <laughs> you there? Yeah, I'm here. Well, I'm in character. Okay. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell. I, I Honestly, I, I could not tell. And um, are you still doing stand-up? Uh, occasionally, I don't really do it much. I did it. I did it at Helium in Philadelphia a few weeks ago. Oh. I opened for my friend. Then it was fun. Yeah, I like that club. It's not far from where we are. We're, we're living in Rittenhouse Square. Okay, which is yeah. I took the speed line to Fifteenth and Sixteenth and Locust, the last stop, and I walked a few blocks to Twentieth and Sampson. It was a very nice walk. It was a nice night in Philadelphia, and I and people were out, and it has that good buzz again. Yeah, it does. I really, I mean, that's what I miss, is the buzz of the city. I haven't lived in an apartment building in years. Um, but we're living on, on, you know, high up in this really nice apartment, two-bedroom apartment. Our grandchildren stay over occasionally, which is great. Um, my wife still laughs at my jokes. Well, there you go. That's good. Yeah. So now, how many? How did you decide on how many episodes you were going to do for this? Well, that's a decision. Uh, there's an order from Audible. You know, it's just like dealing with Audible is like dealing with a TV network. You need their approval for this. Um, they tell you how many episodes they need and when. You know, it's they're a very big player. You know, I mean, and they're owned by Amazon. Now they all come out at once, I believe, right? You know, you might know more about it than me. It's embarrassing. I think, I think there are going to be five released at the same time. Now, do you like that as a creator? Because before, you know, you could sit there and with Dr. Katz was on every week. But when you create something, when it comes all out at once, you know, if people are really enjoying it, they can kick that out and a day or two. And then it's like everyone's probably coming back to you going, we need more, we need more. Yeah, well, that, that's, you know how you binge watch something on TV? Yeah. Well, I, hope, I hope people binge listen to this Audible show. Well, I have Amazon Prime and I got it for a free, uh, 
someone gave me a $250 gift card when we moved and I had it for the free trial because I was ordering stuff for the our place and now I didn't cancel it. I, my girlfriend's supposed to have an alert so I have it till June 26th I paid for it so now I'm going to listen because I'm excited to listen and it's something that you know it is I mean as I said I don't really listen to podcasts I usually listen to serious radio but if I can just pop it on my phone or you know just go on my computer it sounds like it just seems it's I don't need to watch something I'm tired of watching TV I like to sit there and listen to different stuff and I think that's why this show is going to be very popular because people just want to listen now I think, I think there's something to it. It's to you, uh, speaking of watching what you don't want to do, have you ever watched Catastrophe on Amazon? I've heard it's hysterical. I have not seen it. Really great show. Uh, he's somebody, Rob Delaney, somebody I'd love to get on uh, the Audible Dr. Katz. And I'm, so sure, I'm sure if you put it out there, you could get him. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So now, are you doing stand-up still? But besides, you know, your live shows, are you still doing stand-up, or is it something that you don't really miss, or is it something you miss and you want to do again? Well, I, I did a show in Philadelphia not so long ago where, where it was back to guest live, but it's stand-up up front. And uh, I worked with a woman named Janelle James. I don't know if you know her at all. I don't know her. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really in touch. I'm in touch with the Philadelphia comics from 20-odd years ago. Right. Janelle James, Bonnie McFarland, and a guy named David Feldman. Oh, David's, David's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a good show and, and really nice turnout. And we did it at the Philly Punchline. Okay. Which is a, a really wonderful venue. I'm not sure it worked for, for this show, but um, it's a great club. Well, that area is up and coming. You know, it's changed a lot. It's I believe it's in Fishtown, and that's just changed. It's very hipper and trendy now, and I think it's good because back in the day, Philadelphia, besides the comedy works in the Comedy Factory outlet, there was a place called Going Bananas, and then there was also Ben Carlin was an old Philly comic, tried to open a club, and there was Philly had a good comedy scene, and now I think that scene's coming back, which is great because it's, you know, I noticed from playing the the at helium the crowds they're they're hip and they want to listen and they're they're not idiots which is always good yeah yeah um and also they booked on my rear so how bad can they be exactly i mean don my is whenever he's i used to work at the comedy factory outlet whenever dom came in everyone in the audience knew some one of his relatives and they would just yeah. yell out to him and he loved it because you know dom he, he loves that attention he's so a master with the crowd that it was great yeah, Dom took my wife and I to South Philly, where to this amazing restaurant. We could actually park your car in the middle of the street. We I know. Had- <laughs> That's crazy. I took a lift around Thanksgiving, and I try to tell people that most places where you make a left turn, no, after a seven o'clock at night or six o'clock at night, people just park there. Yeah. So, yeah. no, Dom is my oldest friend in comedy. He's such a great guy. Now, so it comes out June 8th, and now is there plans for a second season, or do you have to hear what happens, or what's that process? Uh, I think there's an order for um, 15 episodes. Yeah. So a, a, a season, I'm guessing, is we're calling five episodes a season, so three seasons. Okay, great. Now, are you still playing guitar at all? I play lap steel now. 
You play what? Lap steel guitar. Okay. With a slide. That's good. Because, yeah. And I play keyboard. Uh, but the guitar, I used to, you know, my, because of MS, my left hand has slowed down significantly. So I can't. But my right hand is good, so I can still pick the strings. Do you, are you a musician at all? No, but I'm friends with a lot of musicians, and I always yeah. envy musicians. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I still spend a lot of time making music. Well, cool. Well, you know, I want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad we got to talk, and I'm, I'm, now, I'm, now, I'm now excited. I'm excited about this. I'm gonna, it's a June 8th, I believe, people. It's on Audible. It's on Amazon Prime, so you can watch it. That's, if you have Amazon Prime, it's free, but I believe if you don't, it's four ninety nine a month. And you got to check it out. So now, do you tweet a lot? Are you a tweeter guy? A Twitter guy? I'm a compulsive tweeter. And what's your what's your handle? I sound like a I sound like a CB guy. What's your handle on there, Jonathan? Breaker breaker. Yeah. Um, my handle is just a uh, Jonathan Katz. And your website is JonathanKatz.com. Right. And now, can people find old episodes of Doctor Katz? Is there, are they on sale? Do you know or you can buy the box set of the DVD, but most people tend to watch them on YouTube. Okay. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, I got to sit there. I, now, do you have any shows planned, any more stand-up in Philly you plan to do, or no? Uh, no, there's nothing coming up yet. Okay. Well, we got to get you on stage. You got to get out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Jonathan. And people, so follow him at Jonathan Katz. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. You can go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's over 600 episodes there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Do, do you edit this at all? No, I've never edited. Through 600 and odd shows, I've never edited. Can you add some more energy to my voice? Um, I Your voice was wonderful. Okay, thanks. So, people, so yeah, see, and if you want more energy, email me and say, we need more energy from Jonathan Katz, and I will edit it. And people, Instagram, I'm, I'm CooperTalk1. I do a lot of food pictures. Remember when I had that health problem a few years ago, that big health scare? When I got out of the hospital, I wrote a cookbook. So it's 120 low-sodium recipes. There's no pictures to intimidate you. There's no long list of ingredients. So if you don't have cumin, don't worry. I don't have cumin in my recipes. I cook with cumin, but you guys don't have to. So you go to stopthesalt.com, and you get it there, and it's $9.95 plus shipping and handling, and I'll sign it for you. Or you can go to Amazon Prime, and after you watch... Uh, Jonathan's show, Dr. Katz, you can order my book. So do that. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.